This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. Gerrymandering meets supercomputing. And Russian HPC showing its age. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening into another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research, distributed in partnership with Top500.org. I'm Addison Snell, and that's Michael Feldman. And This Week in HPC, Michael, an interesting story of a new kind of supercomputing application. Of course, anytime we have an election where someone loses the popular vote but wins the overall election, we get into discussions of gerrymandering, which of course is the fancy word for redrawing political districts in an advantageous way so that your party has fewer uh, wasted votes. One way to think about this that's been uh, put forward by Nicholas Stephanopoulos is this idea of an efficiency gap, where if I can get your voters concentrated where, you know, they they win some districts by, you know, 100 percent to nothing. And then they narrowly lose a lot of other districts where uh, where my voters barely outnumber your voters. I can wind up stealing a majority of the districts while having a minority of the votes. And uh, there's been a lot of interest around gerrymandering right now. But yep. what can we what can we do about it? And and now we're looking at a supercomputing application that could actually help tell whether or not we've got a partisan influence in how we draw these districts. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this uh, this application that was developed actually at uh, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign was uh, developed about a year ago, and they started looking at how they could determine if the districts were drawn in a partisan manner or not. And um, that this work has actually been going on. Different uh, developers have tried to sort of narrow this. And the problem was they couldn't generate sort of enough maps to sort of prove the case one way or another. They could they could draw like a, a few thousand potential district maps that, that looked nonpartisan or partisan, but that really wasn't enough uh, of a statistical data set to, to really uh, nail it down. But what they were able to do was generate a program that was able to generate a billion maps or more uh, for partisan districting and nonpartisan districting. And in that way, they had a statistically uh, valuable set that they could actually compare a real map that was drawn by uh, people and then see if they could match it up. Um, and they were able to, to do this with by tweaking algorithms they'd been developing for a while and also running it on a very powerful supercomputer, the the one at the NCSA, the Blue Water Supercomputer, which is a, a large petascale system uh, built by by Cray, and they were able to do this. And now it looks like some of this might come to fruition because there's a court case, uh, Whitford versus Gill, head of the Supreme Court, that was uh, basically settled in a district court in Wisconsin, and now it's going to be challenged at the Supreme Court level. And it's possible the supercomputing application could end up uh, as part of that case. Yeah, this is interesting. The, the Supreme Court has heard gerrymandering cases before, most recently in a 2006 case, which uh, had to do with LULAC, which was the League of United Latin American Citizens in a, uh, versus Perry, Rick Perry, which was uh, in Texas. And the court found that you know, while there was some evidence that the, that the 
ways in which the districts were drawn wasn't necessarily fair. It's hard to prove intent there. And, you know, how do you know that there was there was a, a malicious intent in how the districts were drawn? So it's difficult to uh, to assess statistically uh, beyond the correlation whether or not the, there was gerrymandering involved, a, an actual partisan right. gerrymandering. So the point of this big data slash supercomputing exercise is now to draw out, well, if you're going to do it randomly or according to things that made sense in a neutral fashion here's a billion ways you might do it and then if you're going to try to slant it one way or another here are another billion ways you might do it and you look at right. how is it actually drawn and which one does it look more like something in column a or something in column b so if this wisconsin case does go to the supreme court there might be a more evidence now to suggest is yes is there a gerrymandering or not Right. And like you said, since the Supreme Court couldn't find that standard remedy before because it really couldn't find a, a, a sort of a, a neutral way of determining this. Because like these, the gerrymandering usually produces like these odd shaped districts that look really strange uh, when people do them. But they could also be a consequence of, of the local geography or, or sort of strange municipal boundaries or, or other things. And also voters sort of, they, they tend to congregate in certain areas of cities or countryside that also can make things look screwy. But using this, um, this sort of sophisticated analytics that they've developed there, uh, this might be the standard remedy that the courts are looking for, and they might be able to apply it here and then just rule that the uh, gerrymandering is unconstitutional or constitutional in those cases and then apply this something based on, on this remedy. Yeah, the interesting thing to me here was the, the supercomputing level of scale, that they had the application but, you know, could only, uh, without a supercomputer, run it through 10,000 uh, maybe uh, different iterations of the different maps. And it's not enough evidence to really conclusively say um, uh, say whether yes or no you have evidence of gerrymandering. To be able to take this to the billion map level and use right. the Blue Water supercomputer, that I think really is something quite new and, and it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Yeah, there's nothing to, to say that the uh, this is actually going to be brought into evidence in this case, but this has got so much play in the media over the past actually couple months because of some recent... Uh, or media intention on gerrymandering that um, I'm guessing that all the parties involved are actually aware of this technology now. And certainly the, the plaintiff in this case uh, knows about it. And he's, whether they decide to bring this up or not is, is sort of an unknown. But I would think uh, if, if they're looking at this like I am, they would certainly want to, uh, to give this as a possible remedy that the Supreme Court or the courts need to do this. So uh, it'll be interesting to follow. I don't know when the court case will come up, but I think it's going to be within the next uh, within the next year or so, maybe maybe in even less time, and we'll we'll follow this as it goes. Okay, Michael. Also this week in HPC, there's a list uh, coming out of Russia now, the top 50 yep. supercomputers in Russia that I, I suppose in a sense was meant to instill a national pride about here are all these great supercomputers, supercomputing capability that we have in the country, but in a sense, it has a, a bit of the opposite effect because a closer examination of the list uh, shows that some of these uh, supercomputers are starting to age and maybe innovation or advancement is starting to fall behind. 
Yeah, when you look at the list, uh, it's there's very little turnover in it. It was like 3% turnover in the top 50 and very little aggregate performance increase. Now, we, we look at the top 500, and we've all – We've we've seen a tail off on that as well. There's not been as much uh, turnover in the that international list, and the aggregate performance is creeping up uh, slower, but not at the not at the at the magnitude that the Russian list is. Now it's a smaller data set, and it's a smaller country, but there's something else going on in Russia uh, because basically a lot of these top systems have been around for a few years. They're using you know two year old or three year old processor technology, and they're not. They're not being replaced um, at at the clip they were before. There used to be like 10 or so um, systems on the top 500 list that were Russian, and now it's down to about five systems. So they're slowly falling off the international list, and the performance on the top 50 list in Russia is, like I said, is barely increasing. Yeah, and it's interesting because there are capable supercomputing vendors in Russia. Yep. Uh, you've got really two vendors that have that have shown a lot of capability at the supercomputing side, starting with T Platforms, which is the vendor behind the Lomonosov supercomputer, which is currently the top of the list at Moscow State University. Uh, they got slowed down by some U.S. export uh, restrictions, but even that didn't finish off the company, and they're they're still in there swinging away. And uh, and even after those export restrictions got lifted, and then you've got RSC in there also, and and they've shown a, a lot of capability, particularly around very dense computing systems uh, built on Intel Xeon Phi processors. So each of those companies has had uh, stated roadmaps that make them exascale capable in very competitive time frames internationally. So when you see this list stagnating, to me, it really signals to what extent there's an appetite for new levels of supercomputing uh, capabilities in the country. You know, wh- where's the, the Russian exascale plans? Where are the Russian pre-exascale systems? Because it seems like they have the capability. Yeah, and it just uh, yeah, I, I think it is the demand. I mean, these systems are just not being replaced with uh, systems, uh, more powerful systems at the clip they used to be. And yeah, they they do, or they did have an exascale plan at one point. They were actually looking at 2020 to put something up there at, at the exascale level, and they were even had a project that was working on their own processors. But I mean, in the interim, since since they were talking about that, and certainly more recently, the uh, the the demand uh, for these things is it looks like it's gone way down, and I I gotta believe it's what's happening in the Russian economy, which has had a couple of uh, a couple of very serious things happen to it over the over the past couple of years. Well, yeah, in particular, a lot of Russia's economy is tied to the energy market, the oil and gas market, and there's been the depressed price of oil. Uh, which has to do with a lot of factors that go beyond yep. supercomputing. But the price of oil has been low. Uh, that's uh, That's been one factor uh, stifling the Russian economy. They've been involved uh, in a lot of international conflicts. So what resources they've had have been directed there. So you're right. There are a lot of uh, macroeconomic uh, considerations going into the state of the Russian economy uh, but but still, you know, you could say the same thing about other countries as well, and yet Russia continues to fall behind on the list. Well, yeah, but I think actually in Russia's case, they've they've had some sort of unusual thing. It's not just their oil um, their oil slowdown. I mean, the the 
The other problem was the economic sanctions imposed by the West as, as punishment for Russians' involvement in the Ukraine and their annexation of Crimea. That really hurt their economy. Their, uh, they had to, the GDP got cut significantly. They had to devalue the ruble by about 50% to help lift exports. But when you're trying to buy uh, componentry to make those supercomputers, that's going to drive up the cost of those computers at a time where your economy is tanking and you don't have the money. So you got to believe the priorities by the Russian government are such that they're just not going to be investing aggressively uh, to, to build those newer supercomputers. It's just going to slow down that activity and, and lengthen those, those, those cycles quite a bit. It would be a pointed example of here's a, a direct effect that economic sanctions are having on a country. If it's to, if it's pushing out these supercomputing plans, then that has a, a secondary effect on uh, scientific research and industry across the board for the whole country. Yeah, and you know, just look at the contrast of now between the, the directions of Russia and China and that they've gone sort of in opposite directions and where they were t 20 years ago where China was sort of behind you know, Russia was sort of, or at the time, it was the Soviet Union sort of leading the way. And uh, when they were both, uh, you know, big communist countries and just how the times have changed. And now Russia's sort of on the skids here. And it's, it's, it looks to be an also ran in the, uh, the exascale race. Well, I guess we'll find out. It, 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 it's not too late to start building these systems. It's a question, of, <laughs> of, 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 again, of the appetite for it, whether Russia wants to invest there. Okay, Michael, well, those are two pretty fascinating stories, <laughs> and our listeners can get the full stories on top500.org. Thanks, uh, thanks again, Michael, and thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing. For more information, visit intersect360.com.